This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey everyone, Genevieve here with a quick heads up that we encountered some recording difficulties during this pair of episodes, so you'll likely notice that Tasha's audio sounds significantly different from the rest of ours. We hope it's not too distracting, and promise that we'll sound like ourselves again by the next episodes. Thanks for listening. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps. American movie theaters are mostly closed right now, so we're still focusing on quarantainment, pairing films that you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we'll be looking at two heavily autobiographical films about, um, guys, uh, who's the new kid? Hello! Don't mind me. I'll just be over here watching. Oh, oh, that's Alex. He's an upcoming reporter who wants to interview all of us for a big Entertainment Weekly feature. He just needs to sit in on the next month or so of tapings to see how we do the podcast. Um, he, he looks, he looks like a kid. He looks like he's about 14. I'm 18. Well, nearly. <laughs> nearly 16. I'm, I'm 15. Okay, I was pretty close. Anyway, isn't it going to be weird having him watch this? He's going to see all the stuff we normally fix in editing, like the way Keith swears nonstop and the way Scott and I agree about everything about movies when we aren't actually on the mic. No, it's okay, guys. Uh, We told him to make us uh, look cool in the piece. Yeah, we were just chatting with him about movies before you got here. He's really knowledgeable, so we know he's going to like us and portray us in the absolute best light possible, even if it means utterly fictionalizing us. I'm a big fan of the podcast, especially some of the more obscure Patreon stuff, like the one where you sat in the car in a movie theater's parking garage and ranted about the rise of Skywalker together. That felt like a real turning point in the show, in terms of finding a looser, more spontaneous sound. See, he knows his stuff. Also, I promised him an interview later, and I'm certainly not going to use that as an opportunity to ramble about how I'm a much better podcaster than the rest of you, and I'm secretly planning to break out into a solo podcast. Just hold out for a couple hours, kid. I got all the real dirt on this podcast for you right after we're done taping. Well, I guess we should get rolling on it then, so his lead for the piece isn't something about sitting here for two hours watching us dither instead of talking film. Uh, Genevieve, you want to tell the listeners what we're doing this week? The story of Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous feels like a big, cheesy cinematic contrivance. A 15-year-old boy gets called up to write for Rolling Stone magazine and winds up on tour across the country with an up-and-coming rock band that's in the middle of blowing up in several different ways. But it's a true story because it's Cameron Crowe's story, mildly disguised and storified. He really was a teenage writer for Rolling Stone, and he spent his adolescence interviewing his rock heroes. British journalist and novelist Caitlin Moran has a similar story about becoming a teenage music critic and reinventing herself in the process, which she turned into the 2014 novel How to Build a Girl. That book is now a film, freshly out on VOD and starring Booksmart's Beanie Feldstein as the Moran stand-in, a teenage girl who finds out that cruelty and writing talent get her power and respect, but not the love she's looking for. These are pretty different movies. One set in the 1990s among working-class folk in the British Midlands, one trailing across America in the 1970s in pursuit of rock and roll. But they tell very similar stories, about a couple of young, uncool kids chasing their own forms of cool, their first big unrequited loves, their small shots of fame, and their adult voices, all while navigating emotionally complicated family situations and filtering everything through a passion we see them discover on screen, a love of music, and all of the emotions it expresses. We'll get into their fandom, and their attempts to transcend fandom by becoming journalists, after this. like to interview you or somebody from your band. Oh, the enemy. A rock writer. How old are you? 17. Me too. Actually, I'm 16. Me too. Isn't it funny? The truth just sounds different. I'm 15. If you're going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with the rock star. They're gonna fly you places for free. Oh! 
you're gonna meet girls. Oh God, it's gonna get ugly. I am telling secrets to the one guy you don't tell secrets to. I know what's going on. Your mom called! I have family members with severe anxiety problems. Hey, you wanna go to a party with some good people looking to have a good time? Don't take drugs! Don't take drugs! Your mom kind of freaked me out. It's Bowie! Rock stars have kidnapped my son. I am a golden god! By the time Cameron Crowe directed his first movie, Say Anything, at age 32, he had already had several successful careers. As a teenager, he wrote for Cream Magazine under the wing of famed rock critic Lester Bangs, and wound up as the youngest correspondent in Rolling Stone history, touring with the Allman Brothers, and writing about Led Zeppelin, Eric Clapton, Neil Young, Yes, and a lot of other artists who reportedly hated and distrusted Rolling Stone, but were kinder to a kid who honestly appreciated their work. From there, he pivoted into being a novelist, first going undercover as a high school student at age 22 to experience the senior year he never got to have because of his writing career, and then turning his observations from that year into the 1981 novel Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which was optioned for film adaptation before it was even finished. So he wrote the screenplay for that, and then the screenplay for a movie called The Wildlife, and then Say Anything, which James L. Brooks ended up producing with Crow directing all of which is to say that Crow was a precocious kid with a lot of ambition, and he had worked his way through a lot of hard-to-enter professions very early in life. A lot of that precociousness comes through in William Miller, Crow's stand-in in his autobiographical movie Almost Famous, but virtually none of the ambition does. William, as played by Patrick Fugit, is a cherry-cheeked, wide-eyed, aw-shucks kid who Norman Rockwell would have been proud to paint, and he's awfully easy to like. When he heads off to his first assignment, trying to interview Black Sabbath for Lester Bangs, played by a young Philip Seymour Hoffman, he can't get past the security gate, but he's rapidly adopted by a team of good-time band followers, led by Kate Hudson as the equally wholesome rock fan Penny Lane, and he quickly manages to impress the members of the up-and-coming rock group Stillwater, including Billy Crudup as ego-driven guitarist Russell Hammond. Before long, they're taking him on a bus tour across America, and he's struggling to interview Russell, cope with his crush on Penny, and find out where rock fandom ends and rock journalism begins. It's a sweet movie fantasy, but it's also fairly close to the truth. While a lot of the details have been changed, for instance, the real-life Cameron Crowe met Rolling Stone editor Ben Fogg Torres before he started writing for him, rather than fudging his age with a fake voice over the phone, Crowe still claims the only thing fully invented for the movie, the only thing he calls a fake scene, was the reconciliation between his sister, played by Zooey Deschanel in the movie, and his mother, played by Frances McDormand. In a Rolling Stone feature back in 2000, when the movie came out, Crow said that his wildest dream was that his invented happy ending for his family could actually help heal the rift between himself, his sister, and their mother. That same piece explores some of the dramatic background behind the story of how Crow got his first big Rolling Stone feature. Stillwater is a fictional band. In real life, Crow toured with the Allman Brothers, who were suspicious of Rolling Stone after a previous frank behind-the-scenes feature that they found unflattering. But they opened up to the young Crow on the road. Then Greg Allman took away his interview tapes, suspecting he might be an undercover cop, and he ended up having to write the story without references, until photographer Neil Preston got the tapes back. All of that is as big a drama as anything that happens in the movie, which is more of an energized but melancholy coming-of-age story, about a boy coming to terms with the fact that his place may be on the outside of the adult world that he's currently watching and fantasizing about. William loses his virginity on the tour, and he gets his heart a little broken. He gets betrayed by the band and by Russell. He gets to see a lot of ugly behind-the-scenes secrets that interfere with the music and threaten Stillwater's future. Then the Rolling Stone crew lets him down. Penny proves a lot of her live philosophy about not getting attached is a cover for her own problematic attachment to Russell. But it's still all something of a grand and nostalgic adventure, a look back into Crow's past that feels a little dumbstruck with wonder. I was just a kid, and I got to do and see all these wild things, the movie basically says. Almost Famous is startlingly open-eyed and insightful about the eternal distance between the people who make art and the people who write about it, and how on some level they're all using each other. But by filtering it all through William's eyes, Almost Famous does something pretty magical. It makes rock and the rock star lifestyle look mysterious and unattainable and aspirational again. Call me if you need a rescue. We live in the same city. I think I live in a different world. <laughs> Speaking of the world, I've made a decision. I'm gonna live in Morocco for one year. I need a new crowd. Do you wanna come? Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. You sure? Ask me again. Do you want to come? Yes, yes. Gotta call me. Okay. It's all happening. It's all happening. It's all happening. So, uh, as usual, we can kick off with, like, what's your what's your history with Almost Famous? I'm curious how many of you ended up watching Untitled, the uh, significantly longer director's cut, which I believe only exists on the, like, the deluxe Blu-ray set. I know that some of you were, were touting that version over the theatrical release version that's readily available for rental. Uh, I watched the Untitled version, <laughs> so hopefully... I guess I'll get what you get from the... Uh, from the theatrical version because the untitled version is longer. But my memory, obviously I saw Almost Famous in the theaters and then I caught up with Untitled when it came to DVD. And my memory was that the Untitled cut was better. Uh, I mean, it was longer, but it, I remember liking it more. And so that's kind of what I ended up doing is kind of choosing the longer version this time. Yeah, you uh, you talked me into doing it, which I, when I saw that it was two hours and 40 minutes, I was like, Scott! <laughs> <laughs> but um, I've seen Almost Famous before. I did not see it in the theater. It was kind of a flop in theaters, as, yes. I, as I recall. Yeah. But yeah. I, I definitely saw it on probably DVD at, at some point. But it's been at least 10 years uh, since I saw it, the theatrical version. I had never seen Untitled before. So when I sat down to watch it this time, I had this really strange sensation of not knowing if I had just forgotten large chunks of this movie or if they were part of the almost 40 minutes of footage that is not in the theatrical version. And as it turns out, uh, a lot of the scenes that I was really responding to and being like, wait, this is really funny. How how did I forget about this? Were uh, exclusive to the untitled uh, version, which as it turns out, has several scenes that don't even exist in the theatrical cut, um, including a really funny one with Kyle Gass as a uh, radio DJ. <laughs> <laughs> that just doesn't move re- the story forward but it's really good no no but you know what i didn't really mind that you know uh two hours and 44 minutes aside like i feel like those scenes gave me a lot better sense of the characters and again it's hard to say because it's been so long since i watched the the theatrical version but i feel like just getting to spend a little more time with these characters like almost every scene is a, like i looked it up it's just like a little longer you know there's like a, a little more dialogue at the beginning and at an end of almost every scene that i think just gives all of these characters a little more in their relationships a little more well-rounded shape and gave me a lot more affection for pretty much all of them than i remember having the first time i was especially the members of of the band and Billy Crudup's character, who I just had in my mind as sort of a more of an antagonist, unlikable character. You know, obviously, he is not a a great guy in in many respects, but I found him so much more likable than I had, like, preserved him in my memory uh, in this viewing. And I suspect at least some of that is because of the untitled version just kind of giving you more just hangout time with these characters does the untitled version have more of uh, jimmy fallon's promoter character yes that's the one that just feels in the theatrical cut abbreviated in a really weird way because he kind of shows up gives everybody a big speech about how how helpful he's going to be and how he's going to turn their careers around and then that's just a device basically to put the the group on a plane so they can have a big, big dramatic moment and then he's he's literally never seen or heard from again there's a lot more of him in the untitled cut and and even that speech is longer too and it has some of the better lines and it like uh so like oh, what's the line like it's, it's pouring the rain outside and, and i'm the only one selling umbrellas or something like that i, I forget what it, what it was exactly yeah. but he's also a lot more active in russell's decision to say that it was all made up he's mm, yeah. he's like an active participant in that Mm, yeah yeah i like this movie a lot i saw it a couple times in the theater uh when it came out and liked it a lot but i i think the untitled cut i don't want to spend the whole podcast talking talking about one versus the other but i think it is uh superior in almost every way there's one edit that i really that in the original cut that we that we lose in this one but which is the i don't yep. i can't stand around here all day yep. talking to my fans and cut to them eating it's in a been, restaurant and that cut that's such a better cut in the theatrical version than the, the untitled 
but everything else is better. I mean, I, I like the longer scenes. I, I actually think the Kyle Gass scene, you really do get a sense of how Jason Lee and Billy Crudup's characters relate to one another and mm-hmm. how the, the tension that's that's sort of like they're not admitting, but is right there on the surface. But I mean, I think some of my favorite stuff is just in the untitled cut, which is like the uh, birthday scene for Penny Lane. Essential. Which I think is so much, uh, yeah, it's so crucial to that that's character. That's the scene. That's the one that, that is the scene that kind of made it for me, that like, that, kind of elevated that version yeah. so much higher because I felt like it was an impoverished element of the theatrical version. And uh, it was so crucial for us, I think, particularly to see Penny as a as not this, I mean, this construct, but as a person, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it does much better by Penny, the untitled cut. I yeah. Think. Oh, I mean, otherwise, absolutely. it's just, it's... It, I think it otherwise, does better by Kate it, Hudson, it, too, because it gives her more room to play that character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, the, I mean, because my issue with the theatrical version is a lot of my issues with is with that character because she does seem to be almost this, you know, magical creature, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. this person who's not, who, who is going to be like Kirsten Dunst was in uh, Elizabethtown. Um, so it's, it's just, it, you know, to, to see kind of that um, more private moments, more private pain, you know, it makes all the difference in the world with that character. I'm beginning to feel that I chose poorly. This is the same <laughs> yeah, where I, I just crumbled to dust and we don't get to finish the episode. The only thing, of course, is the Untitled Cut isn't streaming anywhere. You have to buy the Blu-ray, but it also kind of seems appropriate, like as a, a appropriately like, rock snobby kind of thing. It's like, yeah, oh man, sure. you got to seek out the you Untitled the bootleg. Cut. You can only yeah. get it. You can only get it uh, on Blu-ray. You know, I, so. I even got it. I even got a bootleg version from one oh, Scott wow. Tobias. Wait, what? <laughs> I don't know where you. I don't know how you got your hands on that. That sounds. That For sounds like a wild. Worth, that sounds like a wild story. For what it's worth, though, revisiting the uh, theatrical cut, like having never seen the untitled cut, obviously I can't speak to how it's better. But the theatrical cut is still a really good movie. I mean, mm-hmm. I watched this, rewatched this movie when I was very tired and not particularly engaged or in the mood for film, but I had to get it down for the podcast, and it just. It caught me up in its world so completely and just without any visible effort whatsoever. Like it's not a an explosive action movie that grabs you from the front. It's just like from the very beginning, the characters are appealing. The story is interesting. The situation is improbable, but engaging. And, and everybody's just so charismatic. Like you, <laughs> uh, Patrick Fugit here just kind of like gives off a an an air of like young Tom Holland in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just like open faced and and open minded. He has such an open personality without seeming particularly forced about it. And the way the story progresses is just it's very economical without ever feeling rushed, without ever feeling like it's checking points off a list. I just, I really enjoy this story. I really enjoy this movie. And I say this as somebody that came to doubt and crow really seriously, pretty much from Elizabethtown onward, uh, and question mm. a lot of his, his storytelling choices and his storytelling tools, and particularly his uh, his Manic Pixie Dream Girl fixation. But here, I mean, this this is pretty close to a perfect movie for me. It's just, it's such an interesting story told so well. Oh, did anyone else cry during the Tiny Dancer scene? It, I, mean, I, you, I have one. I've seen it in the past. Yeah. Obviously, it's like the scene that everyone knows, you know, but it, it just like when it came on this time and obviously everyone's a raw nerve right now and I cry even more easily than I, than I usually do. Yeah. But like, just like that moment where you're like, oh, here's that that iconic scene. I get to be in this amazing scene for for the next two minutes. Obviously, the, the whole movie is great in a variety of ways, but just you know that scene it was just like vroom, oh this is almost famous like i'm having this amazing almost famous viewing experience now the one that got to me was hoffman's final scene as lester bangs mm, uncool um, thing and, well yeah but i think it's the yeah. first time i've seen this since he died and like you know mm-hmm. i was really struck by the parallels between him dying young lester bangs dying young and my realization that first of all this is an amazing scene just a beautifully written scene but also this is this is his exit from the movie too you know and and uh that really got to me this time and he's so good in this movie but also i really feel like crow really just really kind of comes into his own as a stylist in this movie it's a really visually striking movie 
movie, uh, wonderful camera movement, great editing in this. Um, you know, I mean, it's such a busy it movie, but it doesn't mm-hmm. feel harried or rushed at all. But it feels you know, economical, like, though. It feels right, like you yeah. know, yeah, yeah, everything kind of counts. Uh, and, and, and like, it's nothing wrong with say anything or or Jerry Maguire in terms of the way they were shot, but this felt like a a big leap forward. I mean, yeah, Crow. I mean, it, it's tough because I feel like he had an amazing run. Um, I'm going to include Vanilla Sky in that. I like that movie a lot as oh, well. Oh, I love and, Vanilla Sky. Yeah, good. All right, good. So I'm not alone. But but uh, Elizabeth Town, I think there's a lot of defensible stuff in that. Aloha, not so much. Um, I watched. I started we watching. We built a Rose. zoo. We we built a zoo. It's it's okay. It's, we I owned a zoo. Again. I watched it. We watched it again recently. It, it's it's not great, but it's okay. You know, it's yeah. very generous. It's, it's sort it's, of a dial down great. in terms of in terms of ambition, though. You guys, I haven't yeah. seen We Built a Zoo. Remember, I haven't seen We, we bought, bought a Zoo. zoo. I know. We I haven't seen We Bought a Zoo, but listening to you talk about it, <laughs> yeah. I'm suddenly overcome with the urge to watch We Bought a Zoo, even though it's not you, apparently it's, it's not pre- good. It's pleasant. You won't, it, it, I don't think you'll it, be. You won't be exactly. like. Exactly. I would yeah. like a pleasant viewing experience right it, now. Genevieve, it's... you know what? Hap- you know what happens in the movie. They, they, they buy a zoo. <laughs> Spoiler. Yeah. Oh, I thought they would. I thought they bought an ice rink. <laughs> no, you're thinking of the sequel. That was one of those films. Uh, I know. I know. Scott weeps when I let extra textuals get in the way. But, uh, that was one of those films where I found out about the real story too early on, and it was. It's right up there with Green Book for like the changes they make to the story to to sentimentalize it. Uh, are, they didn't. They didn't buy the zoo. In in real life, it wasn't a zoo; it was an ice rink, and they didn't buy it. Uh, they just went to it, so it's it's not really reflective. Of, no, it, basically, they erase the mother character who was uh, alive and well and a very active part of the whole zoo buying process in order to give the whole thing a, a Disney esque, uh, no mother in the picture, struggling single father kind of feel to it. And mm-hmm. yeah, there's there's a bunch of stuff like that that like. It's one of those things where the the real story sounds so much more interesting than the the sanitized treacleized version. But that's as maybe this this is a really good. And movie. they cut the scene where they're at the bank actually buying. You know, they're 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 at the mortgage company. You know, working out the final details of buying the zoo. Um, so so well, everybody had like little reactions to this movie. So I kind of want to like I have reactions to those reactions. First of all, the Tiny Dancer scene, the thing that really gets me about that is I think... One second before we move on. Uh, the wife did die in real life. It was just after they bought the zoo. Yeah. She wasn't alive and well. <laughs> she <laughs> she was... All right. She was... There's a tragic was, element to the story. She was alive and participated in the buying of the zoo, the revitalizing of the zoo, like the whole zoo <laughs> process that, that right. the film is about. You know what's great is that we're never going to have to do an episode on We Bought a Zoo. We've already <laughs> we covered, already covered. It. <laughs> Right, go ahead. Back to the Scott, that's too bad because I was really looking forward to pairing it with uh, Peter Greenaway's Z and Two Knots. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, okay. So Tiny Dancer. The thing that kind of gets me about that scene is I think that a band like Stillwater, kind of a cool rock and roll band, would impulsively reject or find extremely uncool a song like Tiny Dancer from an artist mm. like Elton John at the time. But but the, here's the thing. But I think like, I think though that they are still kind of like caught in that moment anyway. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I think that's it, the point. You're right. Exactly. Like it's not their thing. It's more in the pop realm. But it kind of they kind of dig into the emotion of that. And of course, it all builds out of a bad night in low times for the band, and you kind of get this crystallization of why they're actually doing this and i i love it. it's a beautiful sequence uh so so uh, obviously i'm with you and everybody else on that and the thing about tiny dancer is that like it's a great song musically like it's an undeniable song in a lot of ways pop or not and there's like this tension in the film between being a musician and caring about the music versus caring about rock stardom you know and mm-hmm. you know elton john especially at, at this point in time was uh, very over the top pop star you know but he he had the songs you know like and i think it's sort of about them getting beyond that surface level of coolness or persona or whatever and just engaging with the song itself it's the perfect song for that moment the other thing too and this speaks to another point i wanted to make is one of the strengths of the film is crow's ability to capture a musical moment and i think the kind of key shot for that sequence is before the chorus where he cuts out to the bus just on the road you get an exterior of the bus and then when you get to the chorus he goes back in and it gives it a little more pop and, and the other the, the other kind of big standout moment for me is zoe deschanel's character uh leaving 
home to that Simon and Garfunkel song and looking out the window. Like that is such yeah. a beautiful, that's such a beautiful moment. You know, like it, it's and it kind of is unexpected because she's leaving in such a huff and it's, she's rebelling so hard. But there's like there's still this kind of nostalgia and, and, and emotion and you know a certain amount of like sadness and, and excitement. It's just, everything is sort of kind of captured in that moment in time of the music and uh you know the film is full of stuff like that there's also just a ridiculous childishness to this song explains why i am <laughs> leaving home to become <laughs> a stewardess uh and then the you can you go into the song which it has this like really sophisticated melancholy about it and it really speaks to the way you know people have for generations let music speak for their their emotions let music express their emotions there's a reason that you make a mixtape or a mix cd or at this point a spotify playlist for somebody that you want to communicate emotions to like it's it's a long standing universal thing that music speaks to your emotions so you want to communicate those emotions via that exact same music so as like as petulant as the phrasing sounds it immediately becomes like a much more sophisticated emotion a much more sophisticated home leaving uh, just because of the way she goes about expressing it tasha in the uh theatrical version does it have the scene where she brings home the simon and garfunkel album and uh her mom yes. uh takes uh, and just drugs <laughs> see they're on drugs okay, okay. And, and points at their points at their eyeballs to yeah. end like okay. in a super close-up to indicate yeah. Yeah. very clearly simon and garfunkel are on just the drugs yeah okay cool i just wanted to make sure that that was also sort of the the preface to that preface moment of, of her leaving. <laughs> have you all seen the Stairway to Heaven scene? I have. Uh, I think yeah. it's on the ed- special edition. You have to play the, they wouldn't give the rights away. I it would have been insane to put it in the movie anyway because it's so long, but it's another one, a scene of just people sitting around, you know, listening to a song that goes on They're for quite a while. They're trying to convince the mother about the poetry and beauty of rock and roll by playing her uh, Stairway to Heaven in its entirety, which would have then played in its entirety in the movie. Uh, but Led Zeppelin <laughs> wouldn't do it. But I mean, but the thing is, this but is Led Zeppelin did let them have like four songs, though, which is pretty yeah, incredible. <laughs> at a point when Zeppelin wasn't licensing their music to anyone no. except Cameron Crowe. I mean, Cashmere is in, in Fast Times, and then, you know, years pass, and then there's three songs in this. I mean, I think, I think they're a little more liberal with that now, but... But, you know, there's such a part of the soundtrack of the 70s. It's so odd that, you know, you have all these things set in the 70s with no Led Zeppelin music in it. So, you know, of the many details that gets right, that's another detail that gets right. So some of you were young music critics. I mean, I don't think any of you spent a week on a bus uh, on a tour with a band, unless I'm wrong about that. But I mean, I, I worked with you when we were all much younger and some of you were writing about music. I'm curious, like, how how true to life this feels, like how true specifically to the the kind of entertainment journalism connection with music and again, connection with the experience of like interviewing your idols at a pretty young age. Um, I mean, I wrote about music, but I don't know that I was ever, I think it was more of a, someone has to write this review kind of situation. And I do love music. Uh, but I think when I did interviews, I was more like more likely to talk to, uh, you know, your Randy Newman's and your Burt Bacharach's and your up and coming <laughs> uh, young stars. Uh, so, uh, but I mean, that, of course, is interesting in, in its own right and, and intimidating as well. But, you know, it's not like I was never on the road with anybody. Yeah, I think I interviewed exactly one band at a venue, like when they were having a show, pretty much every other musician I talked to was just like a phone conversation, you know, like they weren't, they, they were doing press, they weren't like in it, uh, for the most part, the way that they that they are in this movie. So I think that is a key difference here, you know, like none of us were experiencing the bigger lifestyle of a musician, we uh, always kind of caught them at a point where they were specifically doing press, you know, yeah. phoners. Um, yeah. <laughs> sure. But I'm talking about the, like one of the things that this movie gets at, I think really well is that feeling of you, when you appreciate somebody's art, you often feel a connection to them. When you talk to them in person, if they're charismatic people, if they're used to weaponizing that char- charisma, if they're used to using it as, as part of their thing, they're likely to draw you in and, and make you feel like they're they're friends. I, I just I distinctly remember interviewing John Flansburg from They Might Be Giants mm. and him talking about like some of the really weird questions that he got. And I said, what was the weirdest? And he said the weirdest question he ever got from an interviewer was, hey, can we hang out? He said uh, he did an interview <laughs> with somebody who afterward was like, I feel like we made a real connection and we should be friends. Can I come over? Mm. And, you know, that 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 oh. step, I think that that 
journalists have to remind themselves or have to inure themselves fairly early on to not take toward this person who's creating something I connect with, this person I'm talking to and connecting with. We don't have a connection. We don't know each other. We're not friends. We're both doing our jobs here at the same time. I just had a repressed memory come roaring back to the surface (laughs) hearing you talk about that. When I interviewed Andrew Bird for the AV Club and we like went out to dinner at a restaurant like with no one else in there. And we like had wine and talked and it was like we were on a weird date because he was also like very clearly doing press. But like it was like a dinner by candlelight with wine talking to Andrew Bird. And it was a very awkward situation because I like I like Andrew Bird and and his music lot and did at that point too but like we had been put in this very personal scenario that i was uncomfortable with (laughs) to be quite frank but that's like i'm just not built for the kind of thing that william is doing in in this movie you know like i just i don't know it's not the kind of journalist i am i guess Um, did you whistle at any point during this (laughs) no no we talked about swimming a lot as i recall Mm. Well, what, yeah. the, the, you know, the, the one thing, of course, that Lester Banks says that I have said many, 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 many times is these people are not your friends. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it's something I yeah. say constantly about the folks that I and think about constantly about the folks I interview, because a lot of the times they are very charismatic and personable, you know, but they have an agenda and, and you have an agenda as mm-hmm. well in terms of what you want. And don't get confused about what an actual friendship is. And also maybe... It's not that great an idea to be friends too. I yeah. mean, like you know, well, I like, think that's like, what made that experience with Andrew Bird really weird for me because it was like very much the context of a like a friendly thing, you know. But we're not friends, <laughs> and yeah. you know, it it just made it very strange. And then you, and if you do, the become... opposite is also true. I mean, if someone's a jerk, they can still make great art. Yeah. I mean, I sure. still enjoy I still enjoy the movies of Stephen Frears, even though he gave me the worst interview I've ever had in my career. <laughs> yeah. Don't do tell what uh, what happened uh, there. It's off off mic. <laughs> yeah, it was that was a little rough. I mean, it, it's, we'll do it's, it for our Patreon. I was going to say, uh, <laughs> yeah, five, yeah, subscribe to our Patreon. Five bucks a month to hear uh, what Keith really thinks about. But, but it brings Frears. to kind of bring it back though to almost famous and to William. There is an uncomfortable degree to which he is approaching them as a fan would. You know, mm-hmm. and, and they understand and they see it and they can exploit it. I think one of the knocks on Crow as a rock journalist is that he was a soft touch. He wasn't going to be the guy who was going to be, yeah, honest and unmerciful. That was not really the Cameron Crow way. With Cameron Crow, you're going to get a pretty friendly interview. And there was a way, you know, a, a pretty strong contrast between the way Lester Bangs went about doing his business and what the, the way Cameron Crowe went, went up doing his business. And I think a lot of lines get crossed and get confused and you think you have a relationship with somebody that you don't. And, and it's one of the lessons of the film that he has to learn the hard way, which is that they're not going to look out for him, you know, in the end. I mean, in the end, they're not going to, maybe they're not going to have the integrity to let him write what he's going to write. You know, they're too self-interested and they have an agenda. And if he doesn't make them look cool, they're not going to help him out. Yeah, one thing I like about the central relationship between the three central characters is the way it keeps shifting, how it's it's a love triangle, but it's also there's that scene where, where uh, Penny Lane and, and uh, Russell Hammond are, are are entreating William to come to Cleveland, and it's almost like they're, they're his parents in that scene, too. And in the final sequence, like, you know, Russell is is sort of humbled before him in a way that kind of makes him the kid. It's, it's uh, I love the, the nebulousness of that. It's, it's kind of like a little bit, in, in a movie about nebulous relationships, it's kind of the best example of that. That said, this movie could go so much further in making William naive or in making him uh, weak and vulnerable or making him grasping. Like he doesn't, he sort of falls into uh, an appreciation of the, the lifestyle they're living, but he never feels entitled to it. He never comes across as actually feeling like he's one of them. He feels like he might be friends with them or at least have an intimacy with them. But uh, he never seems to come across as uh, like the kind of fan who feels like he belongs there. He deserves to be there. And I like this movie could make him so much dumber or so much less likable in a lot of ways. And it doesn't do that. Like it, it portrays him as this like very sweet, very likable kid who is trying for professionalism from the start. And maybe thanks to Bang's influence, he goes in fairly clear eyed about it. 
his his big problem is falling for Penny Lane, whose whole thing is she's in love with a rock star who is not in love with her, or is in love with her, but not enough to upend his life for her. So I like I'm, I'm curious in general is just sort of how you how you relate to William and exactly how that character is drawn the the details of how he is sort of a naive kid but not nearly as naive as he should be at his age. I'm afraid I'm going to bring up the un- untitled cut again because one of the things I was really struck by was how much more time it spends with William as a kid. We don't really even get to the first Stillwater encounter to like almost 50 minutes into the movie years, I, I think I-, I checked. Much more of the beginning is kind of given over to young William, like before even Patrick Fugit is playing him. And I think it gives a little more attention to him being so young and like he's an 11 year old in high school (laughs) you know and he's like kind of mocked for that it really underlines the precociousness to use your word describing crow uh, of that character um, and sort of the way he accepts his outsider status even as a as a very young kid like he's thrown by it but he like kind of rolls with it very quickly. So I think that little extra bit of characterization early in the film kind of carries over for me into uh, the way that he goes into this situation as as you say, clear-eyed and sort of youthful and eager but not naive. I think Williams, I think it's a, he's a good audience surrogate because I'm assuming, you know, I think the, the audience for this movie is not someone who dislikes rock music and, and I think uh, someone, you know, and maybe a little in awe of, of this era maybe or or just in just rock stardom in general. And I think someone who shares those feelings, but who's smart and who actually kind of can process and understand what he's seen, uh, it, it makes for a fine protagonist for this film. And I think, I think, I think Fugit's really good in, in, in the lead too. Yeah. It's a tough role because I think when it, it's very tough as an actor and I think as a filmmaker to have a passive protagonist, uh, that, uh, you know, and, and so we have to, we are seeing the, the world, through his eyes but he doesn't often get an opportunity to act on it he gets kind of tossed around and we have to kind of get uh, accept that that's what he's going to do and, and and live with the frustration of his helplessness in those situations or his inability to make decisions when he should make decisions um it's a very difficult role uh, that took me a while to kind of get used to i don't think on, on first viewing i uh, connected as much uh as i would have wanted to with that character and that performance but um but it's quite good I responded so much to uh, Francis McDormand as his mom this this time around, and um, mm-hmm. in the context of this question, how you can see William's experience being bothered by her coming through, and how he uh, adapts to the situation. Like for as sort of reticent as he is, in some ways, he's not really a meek kid. He's not a shy kid. You know, he's got a pretty good sense of his self. Uh, he's just you know a little starstruck um, and, you know, being led around by these musicians that, that he admires, but he's not necessarily someone who is easily overwhelmed, um, which I think is what allows him to go into this situation. And I think that having a mother, like the one he has is portrayed in this film, is it's understandable how it uh, would shape that sort of a kid. Frances McDormand's uh, mom character strikes me as just like one of those great characters who plays completely differently if you see this movie at 18 and if you see this movie at 40 if you see this movie as a teenager versus if you see this movie as a parent uh Mm. i don't i don't think that when i originally saw the movie i saw her as uh like overly controlling but she definitely could come across as as kind of emasculating and, and paranoid and like holding him back from all the great fun things in life and like seeing her as an adult, I just I really sympathize with her anxiety about, I, I mean, on some level, it's really about her kids growing up and her kids leaving the nest. Uh, in real life, Cameron Crowe's father had died and it, it split the family up. They they fought. They were estranged. They hadn't, uh, he hadn't communicated with his sister in a long time. His sister hadn't communicated with his mother in a long time. And they ended up uh, maybe not reconciling immediately, but at least talking as a result of this film. And he considered a huge step forward. So I don't think that this is an entirely dismissive portrayal of his mom, uh, but it definitely is an ambiguous one, kind of depending on your, your personal age and your personal approach. 
Yeah, I think you're right, though. I mean, I think it's notable that she ultimately doesn't hold him back. I mean, I think she's also terrified of pushing him away. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain amount of trust that for for as much time she spends checking up on him and, and terrifying other people that she talks to on the phone, uh, you know, as she does kind of trust him to make good judgments as best as possible and, and, and to not take drugs. Um, <laughs> she <laughs> emphasizes uh, more than once. Um, I, I, he never I does, lo- right? No, he never does. Um, not even in the untitled version? Uh, no, not, that's, that does not. He has um, sex. He there's rock and roll. No drugs. <laughs> yeah, no drugs. Um, Missing but, a crucial uh, component. Yeah, but but I I, uh, I I love that performance. I think she she's great, and and she you know she doesn't you feel the love that she has for her kids without her in any way softening that character. And I love the details too, like the, the soy steaks or whatever she's cooking. <laughs> soy patties. <laughs> soy patties, and and uh, yeah, uh, her, her Atticus Finch uh, fixation uh, feels very true. The family whistle. The family whistle. Yeah. Family whistle. Um, <laughs> is the I, I think it might be exclusive to the untitled version uh, where she attends his high school graduation without him there. No, right. It's in the, yeah. it's it in is the there. Theater. Okay. Okay. Oh. That's a, a very that character impl- thing to do. Enthusiastically, yeah. even though he isn't there, and kind of glares yeah. at everybody who's not applauding, even though he isn't there. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah uh, Frances McDormand is just uh, she's such a treasure. She's so wonderful, and she's kind of up there with Diane Weist in. Uh, women who were born to play like angsty strained but still ultimately very sweet characters yeah and she gives she does you can give william whatever backbone he does have whatever moral standards he does have at all i mean that you know without her um you know he's completely adrift and completely seduced by this world in in you know with her he's half seduced or mostly seduced but not (laughs) all the not all the way yeah, that moment where she ends up on the phone with Russell and she takes him to task and, and Russell almost instantly goes from uh, kind of like silly and mocking to yes mamming her. I love that so it's, much. It's so great. You know, when one gets the feeling that either he doesn't have a strong mother figure in his life or he has a mother figure somewhat like that who he's pulled very sharply away from and that he immediately gets kind of snapped back to. Uh, but just the way she kind of forces him to respect her uh, so quickly, just with her, her voice and her tone and her words, uh, it's it's pretty admirable. But, but it's, it's also a very funny moment. Several times, you know, when they are being introduced, says, please welcome from Troy, Michigan, Stillwater. Oh, yeah, Troy. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you guys a little Michigan background here. I don't know how familiar any of you are with Troy. I know Troy. Uh, you do know Troy. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's near Flint, right? It's like... It's a... Uh, yes, but it is a much more sort of upper middle class white collar oh, um, okay. uh, neighborhood. It's like where the car company executives live. Um, okay. to, to, to put it in uh, Chicago terms, it's like Naperville, yeah. <laughs> sort of. So that's where this sort of supposedly hard scrabble blue collar band is is yeah. from. Is from Troy, Michigan. So uh, it colored my uh, reading of the band just a little bit in terms of the personas they were putting on for the sake of mm, the band. I mean, that's the thing about, I think Stillwater is just the perfectly mediocre band. Just like, <laughs> yeah. fe- like Fever Dog is just like perfecto. Like that is exactly what kind of like a, like a memorable, but not very good, you know, middle of the road rock song of that time might have sounded like, I, I think. I just, the whole vibe of that band and it's kind of failings and ultimate, you know, it's ultimately you clearly going to fall short as an operation. It just, all of that rang really true to me. I think mediocre is a little harsh, but but yeah, they're they're definitely a mid level band, struggling with their limitations. As as your yeah, Fever Dog fan, Keith? Yeah, uh, no, it's not. That's not a great song. I think well, the other songs, the other song you hear is is better. And there is, I mean, I think you kind of have to take it uh, at face value that when people say that you know, Russell Hammond is a very talented person uh, who might be a little, but and that he also might be penned in by the limits of the band. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, we see very little of their music performed. We see very little music performed in general, uh, apart from the Tiny Dancer sing-along. At least in the theatrical cut, we hear so much music. Uh, you know, the, the movie itself, it's one of those like mixtape musical kind of uh, movies where you, you feel like you're taking a tour through Cameron Crowe's vinyl library, like his, his best of his favorites, listening to all of this music from like the, from that particular era. But there's relatively little stage rock. And I'm wondering, A, if, if there's more of it in the untitled version, and B, like, is that 
like, what do you what do you think about how this movie uses music, both diegetically and not diegetically? I mean, the the one big moment I can think of is at the, that first concert on the, on the Black Sabbath tour where he meets Penny Lane for the first time, and well, Russell invites them to watch from the side of the stage. And we, we see a good bit of performance and the actors seem to be playing their instruments themselves, uh, according to my musician fiance. I think I, ta- I, <laughs> I, think I talked to Cameron Crowe about this oh, yeah? in the interview. I actually interviewed all three, like Patrick Fugig and uh, Kate Hudson and Cameron Crowe all came to Chicago mm-hmm. in 2000. I interviewed them all uh, in one kind of like session. I mean, they're in different, in different three different sessions, but um, but I believe if you look up, if my interview still is up on the AV Club, we, t- we talk about that a little bit. I think that moment is sort of where it clicks for William, where he's like drawn in, you know, like to, to both Penny Lane and the band. And it's the very, uh, we, we get a very similar scene in How to Build a Girl, which we'll discuss next week, sort of where the the music infects him or whatever, you know, and it, uh, it takes over. Um, so I think that scene is effective on a storytelling level in terms of sort of getting William to the the place he needs to be to go on the road with this band and have uh, the, that experience with them. Other than that, though, I don't think because there's obviously where Russell gets electrocuted, um, mm-hmm. but we don't see much of the performance there. And I think that might be it. Yeah, there's not a whole lot. In the, I don't think it's significantly more in the untitled cut. Yeah. One one very small moment I noticed, and I can't say uh, if this is in uh, the theatrical or not, but there's a moment where uh, William is walking down the hall in a hotel room, I believe, to go see Russell, and he walks by a room where Jeff Beebe, played by Jason Lee, the front man, is uh, sitting with a guitar and what looks like a recorder, and it seems like he's like recording something of his own like on guitar. And based on what we know about the dynamic between him and Russell, you know, he, he doesn't play guitar, he doesn't write the songs, he's, you know, quote unquote, just the front man. But I think it's obvious that he craves, you know, he wants to be more than that. He wants to be an equal partner to Russell. They have a conversation to that effect toward the end as the tour is winding down. But I think so, just that little glimpse of Jeff highlights that aspect of his character where he like wants to be engaging more with the music than maybe he he does or is able to as a front man. He's just not that talented. Yeah, yeah. He wants uh, to, he wants to be as talented as Russell, he's, he's, and he's, he's trying to. He's practicing in the hotel room. <laughs> I mean, he's he's the out of focus guy, which is another yeah. just perfect, oh, perfect t-shirt. rock moment. The rock that that is, and that's so true of so much, so many videos that you see of just usually it's the front man who's who is in focus, and everybody else in like bush or something you can't see, you can't see. <laughs> Cause I mean, the tel- classic tel- example is garbage, where Shirley yeah. Manson is very prominently featured in the the uh, significantly older uh, band behind her is is uh gets less of a spotlight yeah yeah i think uh what was the what was gwen stefani's band no whoever doubt. those guys no doubt like but it's probably the same situation there <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, but i think i think it's got to be especially humbling if you're the lead singer and the out of focus guy the bus know. left without him <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's all, all good stuff Speaking of people uh, getting left off the bus uh, late in the film, we haven't really talked about Penny Lane much. And mm. she is, she's an interesting character. I don't think she's a Manic Pixie Green Dream Girl, at least not to the extent that Elizabeth Town featured one. But she's, she's a bit of a Manic Pixie. She's a, a Manic Pixie Band-Aid. She's got some fairly down-to-earth philosophy, and she's got kind of a, a kind motherliness going on with William. But she doesn't exactly turn him around and and like mentor him and make all his dreams come true in the way we associate with the manic pixie dream girl like she she has her own aspirations those own aspirations are you know kind of sad because they involve being in love with a married man who is not going to break up his life for her but she does have a history you know she has this little coterie of women that she is also mentoring um she has the rules that she's laid down like she's she's just more of a complete person than we normally associate with the manic pixie stereotype. She's not certainly not as manic or as like artsy, crafty, over the top, ridiculous as a lot of uh, women in that stereotype. But you can kind of see the bones of it. You know, she's a beautiful, vivacious woman who comes into the life of a, a like a young and angsty writer and uh, dispenses great wisdom on him. And in the end, like her her final act is kind of like an act of letting go of this relationship she wants in part in order to benefit him directly 
So I like I, I go back and forth a little bit on that character. She's sweet and vivacious, I think, in a way that is very compelling and convincing. But at the same time, she is ultimately kind of a groupie who is giving herself a, a title to make her appear to not be a groupie. She's trying to elevate the fact that she's a hanger on, a camp follower, effectively. And I, I go back and forth on how I feel about how her character is drawn. I don't go back and forth on that performance. I think Kate, Kate Hudson is just like, like luminous. And it's absolutely no wonder that this teenage boy is just completely struck with her. She's also a performer, too. I mean, you mm-hmm. get uh, the, those bits of her preparing to like take over the room uh, when she brings William to the to the riot house with her stewardess shtick where, where it's like, you know, ladies and gentlemen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I like the touch at the end where she gets on the plane and she kind of like has a knowing look on her face mm-hmm. when the stewardess actually does yeah. does it for real, too. She you mounts know? along with it. Yeah, exactly. But I, yeah. I feel like, you know, I think she's experience beyond her years and kind of wiser uh, kind of a hard won wisdom about how the world actually works that mm-hmm. and 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 like her last bit of of holding on to her naivete naivete is the sense that perhaps uh that that russell will leave his wife for her and and and, and not only does does he not do that he trades her for beer right i mean you know it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's ugly stuff and i mean i think it's not a perfect film i, I do like this film an awful lot i think it does kind of soften the blow a little bit like I think you know, rock star groupie behavior uh, relationships were a lot uglier uh, than even that traded for beer moment. Uh, in, in particular, I, I think it's a little out of focus in terms of the exploitative access, uh, aspects of uh, that element of, of of being a rock star. But I don't know how, how does everyone else feel about that. Well, and it's not just her that's being traded; it's these other th- you sure. know three groupies, and one, the one of them played by Anna Paquin goes off to England with Deep Purple. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it is. Sort of like their cargo that's being moved around to to a certain extent. Which I mean, at the same time, like these these are women who are kind of exploiting themselves. You know, they're sure they're, like ostensibly by their own choice. Yeah, know? it it really kind of ties in. We're going to get into uh, feedback in a moment, and that's going to bring up a lot of stuff about the assistant and stuff we said in our last couple of episodes. But there were aspects of this that reminded me a fair bit of things going on in the assistant and the description. Uh, they're going to get more out of this than he he does. Like there's a sense that the band aids are are getting more out of the relationship. They're you know they're they're getting to travel. They're getting this association with uh, famous people. But there's also like a real emotional sisterhood. Like they, uh, among the things, I think Keith is exactly right about this. Not really trading the uglier side of uh, the groupy lifestyle. And one part of that is we don't see them doing drugs. We don't see them being given drugs. We don't see them bringing the band members drugs. Like the interdependence there isn't there. But we also just don't see... It's barely noted that they're mostly underage. It's barely noted that <laughs> they're know? mostly underage. It's barely noted that uh, the whole relationship uh, tends to be pretty transactional. Um, mm-hmm. and well, there yeah. is the whole Quaalude overdose, but th- yeah, that is... It's a, it's mostly not, pretty... But that's not given to her by anyone in the band. It's yeah, the and, it, and it's, it, I think it's heavily implied that she yeah. either is deliberately ODing out of grief or is like accidentally ODing because she's not paying attention out of grief. Like This isn't something that, that Russell is aware of or put her up right. to in any way. Um, one thing I'll say, just to wrap things up on, on her, is that I, I, I do think that she exists... To the extent that she's she is a many pixie dream girl type, she she exists to sort of send William on his way. Um, uh, you know, I mean, not only kind of introducing him to this, bringing him into this world, but also um, the two things that stand out for me in that regard are his de- deflowering, uh, which she sort of kind of orchestrates, and then of course the the end of the film when she sends Russell in his mm-hmm. direction too. I mean, that, those are kind of narrative device moments where she where she doesn't seem as much of a person as much more as somebody who is a who is a mechanism to send our protagonist where he needs to be so so if it's gonna if you're gonna sort of ding the film for that like those would be the where i'd where i would do the dinging 
in the version that I saw, at least, she does not participate in the, uh, in deflowering him. She doesn't. No, she doesn't. But she, she. But that's what I'm saying. She orchestrates it. It's like. But her, she doesn't. She's I, like the, in, again no, in the version that I saw. Like she's 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 present in the room, kind of like saying, "Not you know, we're bored, and now you're gonna. This is you're you're going to get deflowered." Now. She's, well, she, she's not the one that instigates no. it. She's not egging them on. Because remember, she's in the bathroom. He's in the bathtub writing notes, and she comes in and uh, and drops trow and starts peeing like. I, I think that there's a very clear feeling there that she just doesn't see him as as a man, as like sexually anything in that moment. I and, must be misremembering the scene. Am I misremembering the scene? Uh, no, you're, no, no, you're both. Yeah. You're, it's, you're both right. Yeah, she uh-huh. does that. She comes in. She goes to the bathroom. He's he's freaked out. And he's looking he, at he's looking at her while while all of the she's, other yeah. she's like girls off the are, side, kind of like looking at approvingly, right. <laughs> It's while yeah. he's it's She's while going to wrestle. the two of them are in the bathroom that one of the other girls it might be uh Anna Paquin or it might be um one Fruza of the other ones. Yeah, Feruza Bog. I think it's Feruza Bog who says basically on board, let's deflower the kid. So it's yeah, it's it's somebody else that sets that all up and I the impression is that she doesn't participate and maybe she does leave. I was so happy to see Feruza Balk again. I miss it's her. It's been a while. I, yeah. I looked yeah. up her, her filmography. She hasn't really been anything for a while. Yeah. We just in general, I, like we could go on all day about the, the million tiny cameos in this. And uh, there's so much more in the untitled one. Yeah. Is, is Mitch Hedberg in the in the theatrical? I, I already don't remember. There's yeah. so many people that are. Yeah, Peter yeah. Frampton so. just yeah. popping up. Uh, Jan Venner. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. Venner's in both versions. Venner just being in the back of a taxi cab for a, mm-hmm. like a one-second visual gag. Uh, someone shows up and it demands they lock the gates. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that made me actually really happy. That scene again. Uh, we're, we're talking, of course, of the the Mark Maron scene Marin. featuring featuring the line "lock the gates," which is uh, the opening of every one of his WTF uh, podcasts. So it's always sort of a a delight to hear it in context screamed over and over again and even longer in the untitled cut that scene goes mm-hmm. on a while in the <laughs> untitled cut yeah. yeah it's a it's a very cameo packed film um strangely enough our other film that we're pairing it with uh, how to build a girl also a very cameo packed film so we're gonna have a lot to say about the two of them and how how many of these like tiny little things they have in common with each other in addition to the big things but that'll all come around in next episode um for now we should move on to feedback feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We've already got letters rolling in about our pairing of Working Girl and The Assistant, and not surprisingly, given how heated The Assistant conversation got, we've gotten some strong opinions on that one. Scott, can you read the comment we got on our Facebook page? Sure. Yeah, we really threw down on that. Like, like people really wrote quite a bit of quite a few letters good ones too so uh if yours didn't make it i'm sorry because we got a lot of them anyway this one is written by phil uh phil writes this episode actually had my jaw on the floor as i listened perhaps it was the continuous use of the word sympathetic that i found disarming criticisms like an uninteresting performance or poorly developed characterizations are completely fair but it was framing that through all the prism of sympathy that i took issue with When I hear that word and when I listen to the episode, all I felt was Tasha saying repeatedly, I don't like this girl, I think she acted weak, should have made a better case to HR, and the idea of her being a producer later in life is laughable because look how weak she is. Why should I like her? It sounded a lot like the kind of victim blaming that I presume most of the hosts abhor. For one, there are multiple kinds of producers, and of course, she could be a valuable asset to any film set. And just because she's not top brass doesn't mean she has no place pursuing a career in helping produce art. Not every producer is a loudmouth, game-playing slickster in a power suit. That struck me as just plain mean on Tasha's part in disregarding of women producers everywhere, many of whom have struggled to get forward due to the inability to be heard in male-dominated environments like the office being depicted here. For me, the film was about showing how these workplaces foster suspicion, thrive on fear, and use ambition against those who may otherwise want to do the right thing. It's about how someone knows something's wrong, doesn't know all the facts, and won't be heard because of that. So as I listen to Tasha Chastise's character for not having more to back up her case, being dumb about trusting HR, clearly being jealous of this other new girl, and being too weak to ever be worth paying attention to, it all sounded like critics of the women who stepped forward years later to report their abuses. Why didn't they report it earlier? They probably asked for it. They let it happen around them and said nothing? I don't know. Big fan. This episode made me feel a little gross. 
So, yeah, I can understand that. Uh, I felt like I was struggling to express fairly abstract objections that I had to the film. And I guess the best thing I can say in my own defense is some of the things that I say about this character are, are very expressly tied to how she is consciously and fictionally written. Like a lot of it came down to like, I don't, I don't quite understand why Kitty Green undermines her in so many ways by giving her such a weak case and such a weak way of expressing it by setting her up in a way where she's doomed to fail for the sake of drama, but it just, it didn't mean, it didn't seem necessary to basically emasculate her in so many different ways, just in terms of what she was capable of. The fact that she'd only been there for five months struck me as just a, a particularly brutal choice, uh, just in terms of her not necessarily having the standing to make the kind of stand that she, she was making. The fact that she doesn't reach out to the other woman makes it clear to me that there's something going on besides pure sympathy and that it, there may be some jealousy involved. So I would not apply a lot of the statements I made about this character to real people in the real world who are making these real decisions. But when you look at a piece of art like this, you're talking about something that has been specifically crafted to make an impression and to, to characterize a situation in a certain way. And a lot of my questions were just based around why is it being done this way? Like, why are we being drawn into a situation where sympathizing with her feels so, so compromised, where she feels so compromised as a character? Yeah, I mean, I think we already, we did kind of have it out <laughs> over this on, on the episode in terms of like the information that she brought to HR and the, and the case that she brought to HR being weak. But I, I think there is embedded in, in the case that she does bring is the understanding beyond herself to everyone in that office that this is somebody who needs to be stopped and what can we do about it um so what she's bringing to hr is not necessarily this one damning case but a plea to acknowledge um what all of them know to be true uh, about the person uh, that they're working for and what ends up happening of course is that she discovers that the hr person is is not on her side then then can take what she's given to her this weak case and say it right back to her in a way that is punishing and uh sad so uh it all it all to me plays quite well and plausibly i do certainly agree with the the idea that this is fundamentally a story about systemic empowerment of abusers you know about uh enabling this kind of uh, bad behavior and what a bind people find themselves in and i do think that that's a useful story to tell i you know films are an empathy machine as roger ebert said and as has been so often paraphrased and, and quoted and part of this is is putting you in the mindset in the, the place of this woman and asking the theoretical question what would you do like is there any way out of this i just found it in so many ways like not not as uncomfortable as a, of an experience as i wanted out of that kind of story not as driven an experience as i wanted out of that kind of story uh, and just kind of frustrating in a bunch of ways. Well, for what it's worth, here's a completely competing thought that came in via email. Uh, Keith, you want to take this one? Sure. Charlie writes, I was intrigued by Tasha and Scott's clashing opinions on Jane as a sympathetic character. I agreed with Tasha for most of the time watching the movie, despite my love of mood films, especially in the HR scene, where her claims come off as irresolute. I was cringing wanting her to give him more context. Later in the film, after bringing a woman to the boss's office, the female producer says, don't worry, she'll get more out of this than he will. That line is probably the most blatant admission in the movie of the boss's abuse, and how well known it is to everyone. It also changed my perspective on her character a bit. I didn't see her so much anymore as naive, but demoralized. She's seen who she'll have to become to get ahead in the industry. A phone call with her loving parents reminds her of the type of person she was raised to be, and she's conflicted with the thought of having to relent to tolerating intolerable behavior. Her report to HR is a last-ditch effort to preserve the morals she's kept for her whole life. From that perspective, I did find her more sympathetic, a girl who is clearly very smart, essentially dealing with the loss of her identity. The report wasn't half-hearted. It was the 11th hour grasp at her morality before she surrenders to indifference. Also, the drug she was putting away was alprostadil, which is an injection used to treat impotence. 
I love that a lot of people uh, get <laughs> right in with what with what that drug was. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we need like a little the morning you know chime here. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and and apparently, uh, I believe the same drug that Harvey Weinstein was uh, apparently using, according to court reports. Wow. Ugh. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay, nice. I said I love that little detail. Now I now I unlove for, it again. Uh, for gross. a bonus episode, we'll be reading transcripts from the from the <laughs> trial. <laughs> So uh, subscribe to our Patreon or we'll force you to listen to those episodes. That's, that's the new deal. Yeah. Um, I like the detail here. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting, like little subtle uh, bit of addition to the story here. And uh, I certainly agree about her uh, being demoralized and about, about her uh, struggling to, to figure out how she can fit in. I kind of question, are we, are we meant to take it seriously? She'll get more out of it than he will. Like, in the absence of any information that suggests that this producer actually is giving these women parts, as opposed to, uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein did authentically like help women's careers if they slept with him, if they did whatever he said until he got bored with them. And then often did horrible, horrible things to them uh, while they were actually engaging in those careers, just like weaponizing his power over them. But here, I don't, I don't know that it's implied that this guy has that kind of power or that he's actually helping these women. I associate the casting couch concept with somebody who's just like leveraging his power and abusing it. Not necessarily somebody who's actually helping women in any way. I mean, we don't, that's just information that we don't know, but it's but a big question mark. But I mean, you know, I mean, if, if it's, you know, if we're talking about ca- the casting couch, then that would be it. Right. That would be like kind of the exchange. Right. The, 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 he's going to help your career if you sleep with him. That's the that's what a casting couch is. I think that line is meant to be less about the boss than about the woman who's saying it and what she has to tell herself in order to you know exist around this systemic abuse every day. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, I like I said, we we've been over this before, but I, I just I feel like the, the the film's goal was to try to imagine what the Weinstein company office might have been like and what people, even people of conscience, would, would do, uh, what kind of compromised situation they would be in to the have this kind of culture happening under their under their noses and uh to me it was it that worked but not <laughs> but we've been over that well i mean certainly in the sense of kind of reversing some of the the inevitable attempts to blame harvey weinstein's assistant for everything that he he did because how dare she because she was a woman uh, i i do think it's successful in that regard i think it's a successful act of sympathy in exploring like why it really doesn't make sense to in that case also blame the victim um but people are gonna keep writing in about this uh definitely they have some strong opinions and uh, maybe we'll take it up in a future episode or put some of these uh online so other people can have this fight yeah i mean i'm glad that people are seeing the movie it was kind of cool that we got the response we did because you never know some you know flops in theaters or didn't get didn't get many eyes in theaters and gets thrown on vod you don't know who's seeing them but it sounds like you know, at least our, our listeners were on board, at least with giving it a try. Well, we always appreciate when you share your thoughts and your recommendations with us. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll head back into teendom for How to Build a Girl, a more playful look at the life of a young music critic. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember, great art is about conflict and pain, and guilt and longing, and love disguised as sex, and sex disguised as love. All that being an acid-drinking, pool-jumping, golden god stuff, that's just for fun.